Chapter Thirteen of California Coast Trails by J. Smeaton Chase. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Thirteen, San Copaforo Canyon, oddities of pronunciation, more kind Mexicans, a mountain home, the pear orchard, a resting spell, the Santa Lucia fir duality of climate physical and pictorial aspects of the region a hot climb crossing the crest more great oaks camp on the nascimento river a delightful swim sunday in camp the trail lost intelligence of chino the san antonio river the village of holon Indian music, my classification. The fog, which had hardly lifted for two days past, lay denser than ever over the coast when, about mid-morning, I rode away along the cliffs. I caught momentary glimpses of black, fang-like rocks among which the sea hissed and spouted in incessant uproar. From the cliff edge the ground rose to a high, undulating horizon, uncertainly seen between the wreaths of the fog. The country was treeless, only low-growing brambles, thistles, and bracken sprinkled on the ground and mingled their faint wet odour with the strong smell of the sea. All concurred to bring up a vivid resemblance of the downs and moorlands of England and I half fancied I heard this seraphic voice of the skylark showering down impassioned joy from the firmament of grey. Gradually there grew before me the high wall of the San Copperforo Canyon, and a couple of miles brought me to its edge. This name suffers many uh, variations. I have read it San Carpoco, San Carpojo, Sanjapoco and San Hapojo, while in speech the changes are run on Sankipoco and Sankipoki. It is not surprising that this modest saint should prove troublesome to laymen, and I had lately met with greater oddities of pronunciation at San Simeon, where I heard Piedras Blancas seriously referred to as Peter's Blankets, and Arroyo Cruz the name of a neighbouring canyon as a royal cruise. The San Carpaforo is deep, with a sandy bar and a roaring surf at its mouth. I took the trail up the canyon, where a small stream wandered in a waste of brush and boulders, and, after passing one or two deserted cabins, came at midday to a thrifty little Mexican farm gay with flowers and children. There was a smell of cooking in the air, and I inquired whether they could get me dinner. It was willingly done, and the meal was doubly enjoyable for the tokens of happiness and affection that abounded among them. When I asked what I owed for my entertainment, "'Nothing, senor,' said the good woman. "'It was but a poor dinner. That is worth nothing.' And when I left it was with a chorus of buena fortuna. To keep the main coast trail I should have crossed the canyon at its mouth, and continued directly northward. I had two reasons, however, for wishing to make a divergence. 
one was to visit the mission of san antonio which lay on the other side of the coast range and could be reached by a trail that crossed the mountains at this point the other to study a rare tree the santa lucia fir arbis venusta which is found far up a few canyons of this range i had heard that a small group of them grew in the san Carpo Foro, and the double object decided me to turn inland after a few miles the trail left the bottom of the canyon and climbed the northern wall scattered willows were exchanged for shady woods of oak and maple with thick underbrush of wild cherry buckeye and many other flowering shrubs the fog had quite lifted by noon but long before sundown white scarves of vapour again floated in eddying in elbows of the canyon or creeping with serpentine motion along the cliff-like walls the opposite summit gaining an increased effect of height from the belt of the fog rose like the wall of some legendary sky city high up the north face of the canyon i came upon the ranch of my friendly acquaintance of cambria it lies about midway up the western slope of the mountain backed by a wood of fine oaks and looking out over the deep rift of the canyon to a high ridge crested with pines for situation the spot is quite ideal and its elevation of seventeen hundred feet with its nearness to the sea give it an unequalled climate in the orchard i saw such diverse fruits as cherries oranges and butternuts with many others all growing in perfection again it was welsh hospitality to which i felt debtor the evening sped with tales of sport for which the antlers skins and other trophies that crowded the house furnished the texts when i awoke at dawn next morning i looked out from my bed under a maple upon a spectral river of cloud that filled the canyon below me as the sun rose the vapour began to draw away in shreds and skeins of grey and for an hour we were enveloped in the grateful moisture another hour and the sun burned as through a glass while the fruit reddened almost as one watched it yet a pleasant coolness held in the shade and now and then a snowy berg of cloud drifted lazily up the canyon to melt away as it reached the warm stratum of the upper air there are the remains of an old orchard hereabout the origin of which is a mystery to the very few people who know of its existence it lay near my route and i turned aside to pay it a visit it goes by the name of the pear orchard but i found only one pear tree remaining and sharing the solitude with a score or so of hardy olives by comparison of the size of these olives with others i have seen in the gardens of the missions it seemed that they could hardly be less than a century old while the pear was an oak-like tree the nestor of mortal pears who were the planters of this secluded mountain garden i could only guess that like the one i had found on the halama it had been an outpost of one of the franciscan missions and had been planted by the old padres with the help of their indians but padres and indians alike 
have long vanished, and left no successors to claim the fruit of this forgotten orchard. Chino's sore withers had become so troublesome that I resolved to cease travelling for a time while I doctored and rested him. A few miles up the canyon I found a good place for the purpose, where a cienaga provided abundance of pasturage, and there I made camp, under a great oak beside the creek. I had provision for ten days or more, and there were plenty of trout in the stream. The cienaga produced medicine as well as forage, in the shape of the herb called by the Spaniards mastransia, an excellent remedy for such troubles as chinos, either in horses or men. I was not sorry myself, after two months in the saddle, to stay for a time in this attractive place. Twice a day I brought Chino in for medical parade, otherwise there was nothing to interfere with a program of fishing, mending, botanizing in my humble way, or unadulterated loafing. About a mile from camp I found the group of firs I wished to study. They grow in a deep and narrow part of the canyon, and mostly on the northward-facing slope, where little sun reaches them. I was greatly interested in meeting this rare tree, of which there are probably not more than a thousand or two living. In shape it is a typical fir, straight, spiry, and symmetrical, reaching a height of about eighty feet. The foliage is stiff, bright, and sharp-pointed, and the cone is unique for the long bristly bracts that protrude from between the scales. The cones are produced only at the top of the tree, and it was a little trying to feel the slender leader bend almost horizontal under my weight when I climbed to secure a few specimens. On the mountain-side about camp grew a scattering of digger-pines, Pinus sabiniana, becoming more numerous toward the summits. It was a mark of the particular duality of climate in this region that both the moisture-loving fir and this drought-loving pine find it suited to their contrary natures. The yucca and the great golden mencelia, five feet high, also flourished in the hotter slopes, the former a surprise to meet in this latitude. I found that I had been largely mistaken in my forecast as to the physical features of this part of the coast range. I had figured this western slope, where streams are numerous and summer fogs almost perpetual, as a region of rugged mountain, bearing a heavy forest of coniferous trees, as being similar in fact to the corresponding slope of the Sierra Nevada, but with more of timber by reason of the greater moisture of the summer climate. Instead of this I found, rising from the coast, steep but rounded hills of grass, only occasionally ridging up to rocky crests. Files of oaks grew in folds and hollows, and mingled with them in the deeper canyons were alders, sycamores, willows, and the fragrant California laurel, otherwise known as myrtle, pepperwood, or bay. Farther north I found the slopes steeper the canyons deeper and more wooded, and the crest of the range, which runs higher than here, densely forested. But there also the seaward slopes are rounded, grassed or brushy, and, generally speaking, scant of timber. 
Pictorially, the country I was now in is full of beauty and character. A more admirable contrast of colour could not be imagined than those massed slopes of quiet gold, gentle in contour, but striking in height, imposing in length of range, and blotted by the clustering oaks with islands of serious green. Especially was it lovely at sunset, when the summer-yellowed hills took a flush of rose, the long canyons were shadowed in purple, and even the uncompromising blue of the sky warmed to a tenderer glow of violet. The flat where I had my camp had once been homesteaded by a settler, one Heisel, whose memory is kept alive by the remains of his fireplace. It seemed natural that the last token of a home-loving German, as I take him to have been, should be his chimney. My blankets were spread under a small oak nearby, and I made a point of smoking my evening pipe beside the old pile of stones round which, I guessed, his own tobacco smoke must often have eddied. I had been nearly two weeks in camp, and it had come to mid-August. My supplies had almost run out, and Chino's pasturage was becoming scanty, but his sores were looking well, and it seemed safe as well as necessary to move on. When it came to starting I became conscious again how quickly any place of abode, camp no less than cottage, engages man's instinct for a home. My heart fell a little as I took a last look around the little clearing, and I waved my hand sentimentally to the oak that had been my green caravanserai. Not with Chino, who marched off so cheerfully that it was plain he suffered no pensive emotions. I got such instructions as I could regarding the trail across the mountains. It is so little travelled that only twice during my fortnight in camp had anybody passed along it, but it is well marked and in some places worn deeply into the earth. I suspect, indeed, that it may have been in mission days the trail to the old orchard which I have mentioned, and that it was from the firs in the canyon, called Arbolis de Incencio by the Spaniards, that the fathers at San Antonio procured the aromatic gum for incense. The trail led steeply up the mountainside to the northeast. There was a hot sun, and the warm wind from the interior valleys brought more distress than refreshment. I had saddled Chino with special care to avoid chafing, and, with a view to his comfort, had packed the load on the saddle as I intended to lead him. I did not fill my canteen as I relied upon finding water where I crossed the creek higher up. But at the first crossing it was quite dry, and at the second only a couple of slimy pools remained among the boulders. These Chino promptly drank dry. After two hours of pretty strenuous climbing we came to the crest of the ridge, from which I looked out over a wilderness of low ranges, coloured here in dark bands of chemise, there in golden slopes of grass, thinly stippled with oaks and digger-pines. I made a hasty lunch, for I had no very clear idea of the distance to the Nascimiento River where I intended to camp and which would probably be the first water we should strike. 
Then, with a regretful glance back to the west at its cool fog curtain, we plunged down the landward slope. The sun beat down with trying fervour. The trail was rough and difficult with brush, and the shade was at an impossible premium. A couple of miles down I found the remains of a settler's house, and explored for water, but without success. An hour or more of rough going brought us to a wide glade wooded with oaks of unusual size and beauty. They were the great valley oak of California, the Robla of the Spaniards. The species was well known to me, but nowhere else have I seen it reach the stateliness of these superb trees. The huge white trunks and fountain-like flow of branches had a sort of Greek perfection. One could easily understand why, if Greece has such oaks as these, they were held sacred to Zeus. Here were the remains of a house, and I searched again for water, for I was getting pretty thirsty. But the cracked troughs in the old corral gave notice that I need not expect to find any, and seemed to hint at the reason for the abandonment of this handsome homestead. A short distance beyond this place the trail emerged at a divide, and I saw with relief the canyon of the Nascimento lying below, with one pool of blue water shining among its sun-bleached boulders. The opposite wall was a high perpendicular bluff of purple-red rock, barren except for a few spectral digger-pines that grew in crannies, or leaned in languid attitudes on the summit. It was an unusual landscape, and one worthy of particular notice, but I was too tired and thirsty to enjoy it, and hurried on to get down to the stream. The trail descended at the north side of the canyon, and by evening we debouched at river level into a valley of grass, oaks, and pines. Fording the river we went into camp among the willows on the farther bank. I was amused to see the puny size of the stream, for at Cambria I had heard a ranchman describe how he had nearly lost his life in swimming it with his horse three months before, and I had intended to use caution in fording it. Such are the vagaries of Californian rivers. There was a deep pool, almost landlocked, close to camp, and to this, after supper, I repaired for a swim. I do not know when I have enjoyed one so much. The water was crystal clear and perfect in temperature. White sand formed the bottom. One side was fringed with small cottonwoods, and the other, where the water was deepest, was walled directly by the dark perpendicular rock, from the crevices of which waved fringes of delicate ferns. The moon was nearly full, but it was not yet an hour past sunset, and the day hovered on that quiet borderland where one can hardly tell shadows from thoughts. A pale flicker of moonlight caught the ridges of water that flowed about me as I swam slowly to and fro and once a water-snake slipped noiselessly away before me, the little black head rippling the water into lines of pallid silver. After the heat and thirst of the day I felt half inclined to sleep in that delicious pool, 
Then I gathered a good supply of fuel, and spent a luxurious evening in company with a small but loquacious fire. Tomorrow would be Sunday, and we should not travel. I was glad that it occurred that I would pass a day by this stream which I had long wished to see. Even the name seemed to invest it with a special charm. I take it to have been a religious reference, and the association of the holy birth with the quietude and beauty of nature that reigned in this lonely spot seemed very happy. I suppose there was not a human being within ten miles of me in any direction. I woke next morning in time to catch a coyote nosing at the saddle-bags which I had hung in the fork of a willow-tree twenty yards from my sleeping-place. A shot from my revolver sent him scurrying. The morning was passed in camp, in hope of offsetting the maximum of heat by a minimum of exertion. In the afternoon a trifling breeze wandered up the canyon, and I spent some hours in trying to prospect out tomorrow's trail among the tangle of cattle-paths that crossed and recrossed, converged and diverged all over the country. It was annoying to find, after several miles of tramping, that what had seemed to be the principal trail led again uh, to the river, by which I knew that it was not the one I wanted. In the end I resolved to ignore them all, and strike across country by compass. It was evening when I got back to camp, and the air was full of the cooing of doves, and the wick-wick of their wings as they flew to and from the river. Once, when I went downstream, I saw for the first time the great American egret, Herodotius egretta, unmistakable in its snowy beauty, though not now wearing the bridal plumes that have almost brought the species to extermination. I noticed also the watermark of the spring rains in the drift that had lodged in branches fifteen feet above the present level and could better appreciate the risk in swimming such a torrent, nearly a furlong wide, and full of hidden traps and dangers. I was up next morning by moonlight, and after breakfast doctored Chino's saw, which had become inflamed again by the heat and the climb of Saturday. I saddled him with all possible care, again arranging his load with a view to leading instead of riding him. Then we both drank deeply at the creek and started with a full canteen. I had no map of the region, for there is a gap of a hundred miles or so here in the maps of the geological survey, but I gauged the direction of Holon, my objective point in the San Antonio Valley, to be nearly due north, and believed I could trust the compass better than one or two doubtful landmarks of which I had been told. The country ran in interminable low hills, or lomos, as monotonous and about as vacant of recognizable features as a tract of ocean. But it was pretty open, and only cut by shallow gullies from which the water had vanished, leaving a sickly white incrustation of alkali. Among these we threaded our way, hour after hour, without much difficulty, while I looked carefully at every trail we crossed for marks of horses' hoofs, but saw nothing but the tracks of cattle, coyotes, and deer. 
except once when a bear's heavy imprint was sunk into the baked clay of a dry arroyo. Chino was in unresponsive mood, though I tried to interest him in various topics. I am sure that by now he understood much of what I said to him. Naturally I did not choose such matters as politics or the price of pig-iron for discussion, but to such sentiments as, Chino, my boy, we're doing handsomely, aren't we? Or, what do you say to taking five minutes for cooling off, old fellow? I am sure he responds understandingly, while when I attempt something humorous as, Well, old chap, I don't see the domes and minarets of Holon on the horizon yet, do you? He replies with something that comes as near a smile as it is possible to the equine countenance. Nature, in framing this best of quadrupeds, seems very judiciously to have put the humorous ingredient at a minimum. It would be unfortunate if the horse were so constrained as to care as much as the terrier, for instance, for practical joking. Between the two of them it seems to be a question whether the horse or the dog is to be the first to surprise his master some fine day not far ahead by bringing out the epoch-making words, Good morning. We had been steadily marching northward for several warm hours, when the cattle paths we were on began spontaneously to develop symptoms of wheel-tracks, which grew imperceptibly from nothing and nowhere. The trail widened gradually into an unmistakable road, which led, on the whole, in the right direction. It ascended a long, winding canyon through sparse timber, emerging at last upon a river which I knew must be the San Antonio, while beyond the low range of hills to the east must lie the wide valley of the Salinas. Then came a fence, at which novel sight Chino stepped out with more enthusiasm. The stream was almost dry, but under the bank I found a little trickle of water, and we took an hour for lunch and rest. A mile beyond the river I saw a ranch-house in the distance, and knew by the flutter of linen that it was inhabited. A young woman answered my hail by opening a window six inches. To my inquiry whether I was on the road to Holon, she replied curtly, Yes. And the distance? A mile. And with that the window was slammed down and she vanished. This was somewhat chilling demeanour from the first human being I had seen for nearly a fortnight, but the news of my whereabouts was welcome enough. We were soon on the main road, and by evening entered the village and put up at a rustic inn, where Chino tasted once again the comforts of a stable, and I of feminine cookery and housekeeping. Holon is a primitive place, though not an old one. It lies twenty miles from the railway, but on a road which has a fair amount of travel. A dozen times a day an automobile charges through, with passengers goggling through the clouds of dust to catch those flying glimpses which seem to satisfy the people who like that way of seeing the country. The village consists of two store and hotel combinations, a church seldom used, a school, three saloons, and about as many small residences. A sound of strumming came continually from one or other of the saloons, where two stolid Indian youths on violin and mandolin sat playing sans intermission 
the simple and rather joyless airs to which generations of their people have danced or shuffled. They played in an oddly mechanical fashion, giving no least token of pleasure in their occupation, but sawing and picking away in a poor, dull way that seemed pathetically to illustrate their racial attitude towards life. A little creek, a branch of the San Antonio, runs through the village, and is vocal all day with plovers, while trios and quartets of coyotes, wise beyond the range of poison or rifle, perform in the dusk of dawn and evening. Holon promptly adjudged me to be a prospector, and the classification held good until the following noon, when my landlord approached me with a sample of rock and requested a diagnosis. I saw that he disbelieved me when I said I could not tell quartz from quicksand, but was convinced when I declared his specimen to be volcanic putty, which it certainly resembled. On the score of my McClellan saddle I was next placed in the forestry service, and as no occasion arose for disturbing that idea, I suppose it remained. For the rest I noted that the dialect of Holon is rather above rather than below the western standard in amount and quality of profanity, and that days when the thermometer registers a hundred and odd degrees are pronounced by Holonians to be agreeable. End of chapter 13